The talk this morning uh, is in response to an email that one of our Sangha members sent me after our last Sunday's discussion. And that last Sunday's discussion centered around the question of compassion. And I think Ross um, initiated that uh, discussion with a question. And the email from our Sangha member um, noticed that our discussion was about compassion as it was offered to others. That is the person who was offering compassion, giving compassion. And we neglected to talk about the people who needed compassion. It was all about, um, about giving compassion rather than about receiving it. And she, um, she noticed that it was really important to uh, ask the question about if, if you need compassion, if you are suffering, if you're in pain and you need compassion, and it is, it's not coming to you. Um, should you assume that the people who are not helping you are expressing self-compassion? That is that they're taking care of themselves. Um, and that's just as important as they're taking care of you. And if that is the case, if in fact, when people aren't helping one another, um, maybe one can assume that everyone's just kind of being compassionate toward themselves and they're not being um, withholding anything, but they're just, just doing what they need to do for themselves. And thus perhaps compassion is constantly being offered. That is compassion really doesn't mean anything anymore. I think uh, she called it uh, trite. <laughs> it's, it's because we can say anything is compassionate. Even somebody who is not showing a lot of love and care is taking care of themselves. So they're expressing compassion in their own way. And uh, that led me to be, to consider this, this idea that in fact, we're always expressing compassion. And the fact of the matter is that compassion may be anything we say it is. <laughs> Uh, I had a, a friend who was an artist and I once asked him, um, how do you define an artist? And he said, an artist is anyone who intends to make art. 
And I thought that was a pretty good uh, description. And we, could, we can also say that everyone is in their own way doing the best that they can, doing the best that they can with respect to helping others. And so, you know, kind of, it's possible to say that compassion is in the eye of the beholder, just like beauty. And so can we see the kindness of everyone, no matter who we meet? We can see the compassion in everything as opposed to seeing the avoidance of compassion. So can we see the kindness, which is always there, but may not be expressed in exactly the way we're expecting it to be expressed? It's kind of seeing the, the glass half full all the time. Even when we feel someone is withholding compassion. And we may, we may think they're being cruel, but I've used the phrase withholding compassion and withholding is not just a verb, withholding. It can be an adjective, it can be a form of compassion, withholding compassion. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, con construed as tough love. <laughs> you know, it's withholding compassion. It's a compassion which isn't just taking care of myself. It's actually taking care of you by withholding your expectation, by withholding your demands for attention, if that's what I'm reading from your behavior. So withholding compassion may be a form of compassion. So let's step back um, a little bit and, and take a look at this um, sort of different way of looking at compassion is that is everywhere all the time, if we could only see it. In Buddhism, compassion is described as the trembling, quivering of the heart in response to pain, in response to suffering. Compassion is the trembling and quivering of the heart in response to pain and suffering. You know, last week at our retreat, we talked about the smile being a response to joy, uh, to, to this beauty of the world. It's, it's a natural response to smile at a flower. Well, compassion is also a very natural quivering of the heart. If, if a smile is the opening of the heart, 
to joy. Compassion is the quivering, trembling of the heart in response to pain and suffering. It's natural, it's immediate. So you might notice that um, this quivering and trembling of the heart in relation to suffering in response to suffering is quite pervasive in our lives. Um, I want to quote the first line of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. All happy families are happy alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. This pain and suffering which evokes compassion has many, many, many forms. In fact, if you consider how many words there are for pain and suffering compared to how many words there are for happiness and joy, you'll find a, an imbalance. <laughs> I'm just going to, I just wrote down a bunch of ones that might be uh, kind of escalating in intensity. Pain and suffering, irritation, frustration, aggravation, anxiety, disappointment, impatience, annoyance, tension, stress, vexation, desperation, sorrow, sadness, grief, misery, agony, anguish, despair, hopelessness. And I'm sure you can add a bunch more. But when we search for words that describe the state of happiness and joy, they're not a heck of a lot of them. It's kind of interesting that we have so many ways of describing our pain and suffering, our unhappiness. It's like the unhappy family is unhappy in a million different ways. So this pervasiveness of pain and suffering, of course, is the noble first noble truth of uh, being human. It's undeniably, it's an undeniable truth. We sometimes talk about undeniable reality that we have so many words for it. It's very, you know, just runs throughout our entire lives. So here's a question. How do you meet 
your pain and suffering? How do you meet your pain and suffering? Some of us meet our pain and suffering by attaching to it. Sometimes thought of as the first poison in, in Buddhist practice, attachment. You just grab onto it and then really identify with it, you know. I am the person who's suffering. You know, I'm unhappy. I can think of someone in my family who has been unhappy for 50 years. And there's something he could do about his unhappiness, but he refuses to. He is just the sufferer. This is, who would he be without his pain and suffering? So, you know, I am... I am obsessive compulsive. That's who I am. You know, and I suffer terribly, but that's who I am. Or I'm obese. You know, I'm just obese. That's, you know, I just have to suffer with that, with all the things that come along with that. Or, I, you know, I'm a loner. And I, I'm lonely. I'm, I, I, you know, but I'm a loner. I, that's who I am. It's, it's, it's a way of um, indulging in suffering, indulging in your suffering by identifying and attaching to it. And that's all who, all you, all who, all of who you are. And then of course, there's the aversion, the, the anger at having to suffer. You know, why me? <laughs> why me? And the anger can sometimes take the form of suffering in silence. You know, gritting my teeth and I'm just going to bear it. But man, I have to summon all my energy to just push through. <laughs> you know, I'm very familiar with that. You know, just gonna push through. Second poison, aversion, aversion, hatred, anger. And the third, of course, is denial ignorance and distraction. Now I'm just gonna find, sometimes like uh, Barbara Ehrenreich who uh, wrote a book called Bright Siding in which, you know, oh, everything is fine. <laughs> Don't worry about me. You know, one of my friends once said, I can't afford the luxury of a negative thought. Now, just everything is wonderful. Denial. All forms of these responses, maybe we could call them, we could call them the suffering Olympics. We're into, into the Olympics, suffering Olympics. 
how we deal with our suffering in all these powerful ways, almost athletic uh, ways in which we deal with our pain and suffering, but all of them are self-centered. When you're in pain and you're suffering, your world shrinks. Whatever, whether it's denial, aversion, anger, or indulgence, it's all about me. It's all about my pain, my, my struggles. And it's quite natural that this happens. The world just becomes my, my struggle. And every, it's, um, I'm also remembering another Russian uh, author named Dostoevsky, who talked about having a toothache. And when you have a toothache, you sense every little like breeze, every uh, texture, uh, every temperature, everything can set you off because you're so focused on that toothache. And sometimes that's, that happens when we're in pain and when we're suffering. Everything is related to that. <laughs> Everything is related to, the, to, to you. We lose perspective. We lose perspective. We can't see the pain of other people. We can't see the compassion of other people. We come into a place where we develop expectations of others to help us. And if, and, and not only expectations, but demands, they can become demands because we are the ones that are needing help. We are the ones. So sometimes we're blinded to the needs and the presence of other people. You are someone who is hurting. And there is something or someone who has hurt you. And therefore, someone or something has to fix this. You're suffering, you're in pain. Something, someone is to blame for this. And if someone is to blame or something is to blame, they better, they better get going and making it better. So we have these expectations and then we have demands. And we may, we may not express the, these, but if we look deeply, we'll find them. So people don't meet our expectations. They don't respond to our demands. They don't even notice us anymore. They don't notice our pain and suffering. They don't fix us. We're not fixed. So what do we do? 
Sometimes we withdraw and isolate ourselves in a kind of little bubble of pity, self-pity. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares. Ruminate about how unworthy and how lonely and how uh, rejected we may be. So we, we isolate more into self. Or we throw a tantrum. That's anger. Why isn't anybody coming to rescue me? And we're angry at the world. Or, again, just shut down. Just become a zombie and become what I call a stone Buddha. <laughs> you just shut, shut everything down. You're not going to feel anything anymore. So from our shrinking, self-centered world, compassion means help me. And when our expectations and our demands aren't met, we blame others for their lack of compassion. Even sometimes call them cruel. Cruel. We ourselves, of course, are utterly incapable of ever denying anyone help. We ourselves are not even remotely capable of withholding compassion. So look again. Really? We have all done everything and failed to do everything. Buddha has said that there is no place on earth where we have not all been born and died, where we have all laughed and cried. We have been kind and cruel. We have given birth and we have killed. We have served and we have exploited. We have inspired and we have failed. And we have forgotten all of that. We've forgotten. We are all implicated in the harm in this world. Each of us is implicated in harm. But according to our teachings, Buddhist teachings, this implication in harm is not 
do to evil. We are not cruel, evil people. We don't withhold, we don't reject, we don't deny because we're bad, because we're cruel. Whatever evil arises, arises because of our ignorance and our forgetfulness. It is in response to the profound ignorance of every one of us that compassion naturally arises. When we see deeply that whatever harm arises, whether we feel it or whether we impose it, and we do, it arises out of our ignorance about our true nature and about what is before us, uh, ignorance of our deepest goodness. So when we see that we are being treated out of ignorance, not out of cruelty, not out of evil, our compassion naturally arises for our friends, our family, for everyone we meet. And I've told this story about um, a, a, a female Zen master named Sono, who was petitioned by many, many, many people who, who knew her as someone helping people toward enlightenment. And they would come to her asking, I'm, I'm suffering, I'm suffering, I'm in pain. What should I do? And her response was always the same. For one year, you have to commit to this. And she would not, she would not advise people unless they were prepared to commit to this one practice. What's the practice? Every time anybody says something or does something or something happens to you in life, you respond, thank you very much. I have no complaints whatsoever. Thank you very much. I have no complaints whatsoever. And this person who came with the suffering and agreed to do this, went out, spent the year doing exactly what she said, came back after the year and said, Sono, it did not work. I'm still as miserable <laughs> as I ever was. And, you know, you're a charlatan, you know, you, you, 
you really, you know, people are are completely wrong in in trying to uh, in trying to a- ask you for advice. And after he had finished his diatribe, she said, "Thank you very much. I have no complaints whatsoever." At that moment, he was enlightened. Finally understood. And one more comment. For the Native American um, tribe, the Lakota Sioux tribe, suffering is considered a great gift because they believe that when you're suffering, you're closest to the gods. And when a member of the Dakota Sioux, Lakota Sioux tribe experienced loss and were, was grieving, people would, members of the tribe would come to him or her asking for them to pray for them because they were closer to the gods in their own grieving and had the ear of the gods. And that is why they were petitioned to pray for them. So we do say that our practice is the way of liberation, liberation from pain and suffering, maybe not so much from pain, but certainly from suffering. But that isn't to say that suffering isn't a great gift. So every one of us is implicated in pain and suffering. And every one of us can feel that quivering, trembling of the heart that naturally arises both within us for our own suffering and for those who are also in pain and suffering. So my friends, thank you very much. I have no complaints whatsoever. Yeah. <clears throat>